0: Welcome to Kohler Mania. Thank you for joining us today. We're going to go ahead and jump right on into the book of Revelation as we've been going through the previous podcasts. I am Tanya. I'm Michael. And we're going to go ahead and jump right on in. I believe we left off at verse eight, so we're starting into verse nine today.
1: Yes, moving right along, flying right (laughs) along here in our our Bible study of the easy, quick book of Revelation Get through so fast. But yeah, we didn't want to just gloss over anything. We are trying to really talk this out and get in depth and learn ourselves some deep understanding of of this book. It's an important book. We want to take it to heart, as was said in the prologue. Blessed are those who hear it, read it, and take it to heart. And we're really trying to take this to heart line by line. And try to really understand what is being said here. So I'm, I'm hoping you're enjoying this. And we begin back in the letter. So after we had a doxology that, in effect, kind of interrupted the letter for various stylistic uh, reasons, to put this at the beginning, which is really at the end of the end times, John continues with his letter, and he lets us know, I, John, I'm coming back to the letter now, your brother and companion in the suffering... He is also one who is in suffering – Uh, If you recall, we said at the first podcast that a lot of apocalyptic prophecy was spoken to an audience that was in the middle of persecution and a lot of suffering in order to say, hang in there, I've got you. This ends well for you. Let me show you and give you a glimpse on how this ends. There's judgment on all your enemies that are persecuting you, and there is a glorious day in the day of the Lord for those who are in the kingdom. And John is reminding I am in that suffering too. And I, and in this kingdom in patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. I was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He was sentenced to this rock of to do hard labor because of his testimony and standing up for Jesus. And so he is on this island of hard labor and he's reminding the readers i'm suffering along with you but on the lord's day i was in the spirit when i had this prophecy what day is that the lord's day
0: sunday well it depends right because you get the sabbath which is on a saturday and then you know we i would say as americans would say the lord's day is a sunday
1: Right. We've always kind of understood the Lord's Day being on Sunday. And if you recall, the, the Jewish nation worshiped on what's equivalent to us is Saturday. But new believers in Jesus as Christians started to worship on Sunday. Why did they begin to worship on Sunday, what they called the Lord's Day?
0: The first day of the week to start the, the week out with some awesome worship, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> praising and getting into the Word of God?
1: Yeah, and it was it was the day that Jesus rose from the dead. And so they wanted to celebrate the day that Jesus mm-hmm. rose from the dead by worshiping on that day. And quite frankly, it was quite easy for a lot of the new believers to worship on that day because a lot of the pagan religions worshiped on Sunday. So they already had that tradition of worshiping on Sunday and probably had that preference for worshiping on that day, and therefore they started to worship the one true God on that day and justified it as a way of saying, we want to worship Jesus on the day that he rose from the dead. Now, there were many other believers, Jewish believers in Christ, who who maintained the tradition of worshiping on Saturday on the Sabbath. And there was some discussion in the New Testament about what is the day that God should be worshiped on and what day is the Sabbaths. And in Romans 14, Paul speaks about how important it is to just dedicate a day to the Lord. And there can be some different ways to interpret what is being said there since he's including all Sabbaths, not just the Sunday or Saturday Sabbath, but also holidays were considered Sabbaths as well. But Paul is making the point, what's important is to dedicate the day to the Lord. The specific day is not as important as choosing a day and dedicating it to the Lord. We have that freedom in the New Testament to choose a day, and the believers chose the Lord's Day Sunday to worship Jesus. And on that day, he was in the spirit, seeing into the spiritual realm when he has this vision. What do you think about this so far?
0: So one thing I wanted to go back to is in verse nine, where it says, I John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. I love that because I love how God puts the right people to write the right books. If that makes any sense, because I don't think that John would have been writing this book if he did not know what endurance was, if he didn't know what tribulation was. He was one that was uh, a martyr for the faith. He was boiled in oil, survived that, and then they put him to this island of Patmos. And that is some tribulation. Like, who wants to be boiled in oil? Who wants to be persecuted? Who wants to have these type of troubles over them? And it's, it's just like Paul, Paul was one who endured through tribulation. So I feel like Paul is so qualified to say these things. And so is John. John is qualified to basically talk about the tribulation, mm-hmm. to talk about the patient endurance that he had, he endured until the end. And here he is. It says the patient endurance. How do you have patience and endure at the same time? It is definitely a gift by the Holy Spirit. How do you have patience and endurance at the same time? Patient endurance is something that is just a spiritual gift, a gift that is given In the spirit, how how does that happen? And I love that John is able to relate to the believers that are about to suffer, that are about to go through some massive tribulations here uh, in the Book of Revelation, where it's like, hey, one of my favorite passages, and we'll read this in chapter fourteen, I believe it's chapter fourteen and chapter thirteen, where it says, this is a call for endurance. This is where we endure until the end because the end result is Christ. That's the greatest reward. And so I just love how God picks John. John knows what suffering's about and he knows how to endure in a patient way, which I don't know if I can even relate to that. And I like how
1: you pick up on this because, you know, we tend to put the apostles on a pedestal. I mean, these were the 12 disciples of the Lord Jesus himself, and we put them on a pedestal. But John is riding home to his home church and group of churches around his home that would have known him intimately. And he's saying, I am your brother and I am your companion in the suffering mm-hmm. and the tribulation yeah. and the persecutions for the kingdom. That I am enduring patiently along with you, with the help of Jesus. I'm on the island of Patmos in hard labor. In this sentence that I was given after, as Tertullian, I believe it was in the year 200, said that John was boiled. And attempted to be killed and martyred by boiling him to death. And he survived that. And now they're, they exiled him in the island of Patmos. I'm a brother in the suffering that you were going through as well. I can identify with you. I'm your companion. I'm, a, I'm your brother. I'm your friend. And he is, is just encouraging the other believers who are also going in this going through suffering as well and enduring for the cause of christ and i love how you picked up on that um as as john is saying that i'm a brother as well i'm going through the same thing as you are same as jesus did Mm -hmm. he he of course went through the ultimate suffering for our sins and dying on on the cross we have a savior that can identify with the suffering that we are going through uh, as well when when we go through suffering. And so John and Jesus both identify with us as brothers and companions in suffering. So I I like how you picked up on that. And then on this Lord's Day, while John is in the Spirit, he hears a voice behind him so loud it is like a trumpet. This is your first like statement, a, a simile, which how do I describe what this was like. Well, it was like this. He wasn't saying a trumpet was blaring in in behind him, but he was saying there was a voice behind him that was so loud like a trumpet. If you've ever had anybody blow a trumpet right behind your ear, you know what is being said here because it will deafen you. If not, at the very least, put some ringing in your ear because that is so loud. And he's describing how loud and magnificent and boisterous this Voice was behind him as a trumpet, which said, "Write on a on a scroll what you see, and send it to the seven churches: to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea." It's interesting how it says to the seven churches, like it's the only seven churches here. Mm-hmm. But by this time, there would have been hundreds of churches, and so why were these churches chosen? It certainly wasn't because they were the, the biggest churches that were out there, because Ephesus is a big church, but the other churches were rather small, and it didn't include a lot of other big churches like Jerusalem, Antioch, Philippi, Galatia, and Assyria. So they're not included in this. As we said before, these were the seven churches where John is from. He's writing home to his home church in Ephesus and the group of small churches within 50-mile radius around him who would have known him intimately, and Jesus is telling him, write home. You know, he may have written home many times back and forth, uh, where we said in other podcasts how those in custody in the Romans were able to write letters out in many cases, and he's writing a letter home to the churches. But why is this in the Bible, though? This has become scripture. So this is more than just writing to these particular seven churches, but this is a representative sample of all the churches mm-hmm. across time, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, this, this, we should be able to read Revelation and the letters to the seven churches and examine our own church. What mm-hmm. is our church like? What would Jesus say to our church if he was writing a letter? Would he say some of the things that are written to these other churches? Uh, And beyond that, what would he say to me as as an individual believer? Churches are made up of individual believers, so we should examine our own self. And What is this church, the temple of the Holy Spirit? Mm -hmm. Like, what would Jesus say to me as I'm reading these letters? Because he has something good about every letter, a commendation, and he also has a criticism about every church in these letters, as well as then a note of what to improve on, you know, what commendation and criticism and word of improvement would he say to me as an individual believer? And would he say to our church that we belong to our particular fellowship? These are the questions we need to be asking when we go through the individual churches. Another thing I wanted to bring to everybody's attention as well is the fact that this could also be prophesying church history from our standpoint, prophesying from John's standpoint, the course of what the churches would be like overall. This is called the historical prophetic interpretation. And there's historians, church historians and theologians that have looked at this and have studied it and have found some similarities in looking back at history from our perspective and wondering if Jesus, through John, is prophesying from John's perspective from his time period— what the course of the church overall would take in history. For example, Ephesus is the first church that is mentioned in chapter 2. And this church, Jesus has some words of compliments that say they are hardworking, persevering, and doctrinally sound. And he then gives the criticism, but you lost your first love. And there are those in this school of thought that believe this is talking about the apostolic church the very first church of Jesus Christ beginning in AD 30 to 100 started by the apostles where the apostles are the leaders of the church and that started out just being so excited so passionate persevering through hardship and hard working and being doctrinally sound and having that passion but then towards the end becoming focused so much on being doctrinally sound that the passion started to wane towards the end, that kind of dichotomy and mixture of having pietism and scholasticism, pietism being passionate, scholasticism, knowing the Word of God. We want to have a good mixture of both of those, and sometimes if they get out of whack and we're too heavy on one side, then we can—our religion— can be very religious if it's scholastic and can start to become cold if we lose that passion. And so it is said in history that you know, the church became so doctrined with creeds and such, and they they lost their passion. And so there's some that see the Ephesus church as, as being the apostolic church from 30 to 100. And in the next church, Smyrna, Jesus compliments them for being poor but rich, Heavily persecuted but faithful. He gives no criticism of them because this is a time where church was heavily persecuted through the year 100 through 313 during the, the time of Diocletian, the heaviest part of the persecution. That was said to be the persecuted church at that time. It's interesting that the name Smyrna comes is derived from the word myrrh, which was a perfume to anoint the dead. Uh, in, as a way of honoring the dead. And so uh, that the name of the city itself kind of brings out that of honoring those who have died for the faith, the martyrs. Then the next church is Pergamum, who remained faithful during persecution and paganism, but then some in the church compromised with the culture. And it also talked about a priestly class that developed, that lorded over their authority over the laity. And that's said to be the state church from 313 to 590. Uh, And then you have the Thyatira, where Jesus commended them for their love, faith, service, and perseverance that was increasing. But there was issues with sexual immorality and idolatry, And you know, is that the papal church from five ninety to fifteen seventeen, especially when you focus on idolatry and the time period where in the church there was a lot of worshiping of Mary and and statues and trinkets and things like that. And then Sardis is the next church where some are faithful and obedient to the word, while overall the church is said to be dead and dying and is that the reformed church of 1517 to 1730 with the reformation where uh there's a break from the church where there's a church that is then is dying because it is gotten off of the true word of god and then you have the reformation where they're going back to being faithful and obedient to the word as as stated and then the next church is Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love is what that means. And this is the church where Jesus commends them for, for having little strength, but they are remaining faithful during persecution. It's no criticism for this church either. It's just the missionary church from 1730 to 1900, where you have colonization of the world and expansion into you know, Africa and America and other places in the world. And the gospel also spread. And there was great missionary activity in the church. And it's interesting that the name means brotherly love, you know, sharing God's love to the rest of the world. And then ending in Laodicea, which Jesus had no compliments for, but said, this is a lukewarm Church that I would spit out of my mouth. You're wealthy and don't need anything, but you are pitiful and blind. Mm. You know, and this is the apostate church from 1900s to the present. Mm. That this is a church that's you know we're we're so rich. This is like the richest and wealthiest time in history so far. You have this strong middle class. You never had a middle class before throughout history. You had either had the very small portion of people. Who were rich, or you had the very vast majority of people who were poor. But now you have so many people that are really well off. We don't know how well we have this, but we don't need God anymore. Evolution explains where we came from, and we don't need God. We, we have science. And so is this the apostate like today, church?
0: like today, like you were saying. Sounds like a lot of things we're seeing today.
1: Right. So if you look at this as a statement of prophecy of church history, and you see this progression, this would show us as being in the last church, which yeah. means Jesus is definitely imminent. But the criticism is this. it's uh, If you were to look at this, the criticism would be, Well, is this really just reflecting a history of the Western Church? What about the Great Schism, where the Church divided in 1053 between the Western Church and the Eastern Church, the Byzantine Church, all these Orthodox churches of the Eastern Church, like the Eastern Orthodox, the the Greek Orthodox, Latvian Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, all these Orthodox churches— The Orthodox Church might look at this and well, this is not our history at all. Or if you bring in the, the churches that formed from colonization in Latin America and Africa and Asia, those churches aren't in the Laodicean last church. If they were to describe where they were at in this timeline, they would go back, well, we're the Ephesus church, and we haven't even gotten to the loveless part of the Ephesus church. We're in the hardworking, persevering, and doctrinally sound portion because the church in the developing world is just exploding in growth. And so it's it's a high-level view of history, and it's kind of a high-level view of the prophecy. So that would be the criticism is that, you know, are we taking a selective view. There's some things that Jesus says about these churches that might not exactly fit in the historical timeline as well. That would be the criticism, but it's certainly interesting to think about. Is this a prophetic view of what we see as church history would show us a progression that maybe we are living in the last church age? I know it's a lot of history thrown out it, there at the a high level, it. but it is a lot of. I history. wanted to introduce people to that concept because no, there's a lot of discussion great. on that, and mm-hmm. if you're really into church history, it's really fascinating to kind of look to see if these churches stand for a progression in the church overall, to where we see the apostolic church, the persecuted church, the state church, papal reform, missionary, and apostate church progressing.
0: And I like how you broke down everything because. I was going through this with a dear friend of mine since we just finished the study about a couple of weeks ago, but I was evaluating even last year when I read the book on my own, what church does my heart fall under or where would I want to be? So I, I like that you said we need to evaluate in our own hearts. What church do we represent? And looking at all the churches today, You know, where does our church stand? Not every church is going to be a perfect church, but we definitely want to be faithful followers of Jesus Christ. And one of the churches that really stood out for me was the Church of Philadelphia. It is brotherly love. Even though there is little strength, what really got me was that they were faithful during persecution. Isn't that where we want to be? We want to be faithful. Even though it's a little strength, and there was no criticism with that church, which I really, really like that Jesus didn't give any criticism on that. But the fact that they were faithful during persecution, that is what I believe as followers, we need to be faithful in persecution. But you know, you see Pergamum, it's remained faithful during persecution, but they had paganism and they compromised with the culture. So it's really looking at this amazing chart that you put together that we hope to be able to share and put that in our notes uh, or at least put a, some information on how you can get that. But for me, I personally, not that you asked me, but if I had to choose a church from my own heart, I hope that I would fall within the Church of Philadelphia even though I may not have the best strength here, I want to have that brotherly love, but I also want to be faithful through persecution.
1: Right. Either that or Smyrna, because they're very, very smi- mm-hmm. similar about being mm-hmm. persecuted but remaining faithful. Yeah. The last church I think anybody would want to be is the Laodicean church, which Jesus had nothing good to say mm-hmm. about because they were just lukewarm mm-hmm. that they had lost their passion altogether they're just going through the motions if anything mm-hmm. and it's that's the last church that that we would want to be and i i think that what we can learn from this historical prophetic interpretation is that th- there's so many layers that you can look at the churches the seven churches in we we definitely want to look at the churches as far as is our church like this is my individual mm-hmm. church is the temple of God myself am mm-hmm. I like any one of these churches and also to examine church history throughout time how's how's the church change church is constantly evolving the church now is very different than what it used to be not even a few years ago we are constantly changing. Church is changing. And that's okay, you know, to a degree. You know, as long as we're staying faithful to the Bible and to His Word, we can all do church differently. Church is done differently throughout the world. The church is very different in the developing world in Asia, Africa, and other places than it is in the Western world. And it's okay to have differences in worship based on our culture as long as we're true to the Word. And so it's it's interesting to look at the churches from that perspective as well to just see how churches can maybe change over time and maybe has gone from the Ephesus church to the Smyrna church to the Pergamum church to Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And I think Jesus will come in the Laodicean church where there will be very few left who are faithful. The church overall is pretty much, when Jesus comes, lukewarm. And that there will be nobody else to be saved. I think Jesus is not coming until he knows there's nobody else who will be saved from missionary work and from sharing the gospel. There's nobody else to wait for, to include in his family. Now it's time to come back. And, you know, are we in that church yet? Not if you include the church of the developing world, because they're back in the Ephesus church right now, just getting started in a very passionate about their faith. It's very different than our church. Now, a lot of it's Catholic, a lot of it's charismatic, and so there are those who wouldn't include them. But there's a lot of Protestant churches as well in the developing world that is really flourishing and just exploding in growth and excitement. And uh, who knows, all the missionaries may come from this developing world to come back to the Western side, to come back to the United States in order to share the gospel with us who have completely left the faith as a people. So that'd be interesting to see if that is what happens in church history but I think we're going to have to stop there and pick up with verse 12. That was a, a brief introduction <laughs> Another to... Another great
0: to, introduction into the churches. Into it's, the
1: churches. When, yes. when we, It's almost like the, the book of Revelation is divided into two sections. The first section reads like a letter, and it's a letter to the churches. It's like, let me speak to you, the body of Christ, the church. I have some good things to say to you, and I have some words of... Criticism and improvement that I need to say to you as well. listen to what I need to say before I, and examine yourselves and examine your heart. examine the heart mm-hmm. of your church as we are approaching the end times through this end times prophecy. Let's first have a a time of self reflection before we begin talking about the end times it's an it's an interesting way that Jesus has um introduced this very important letter to focus us on the end times, but first focus us on our individual hearts. And are we ready? Are we prepared for Jesus to come again?
0: I love everything that we learned today and just the whole patience, endurance in tribulation. And that's exactly where we need to be ready and remaining steadfast in the things that the Lord has prepared our hearts for as we're reading through this book and also to be able to put it into action in today's culture, especially with all the things that are happening, all the fear that people may have. And like you were saying, the Laodicea church and how this church specifically is lukewarm and does not need anything. So why would they need God? And it seems like we are entering into that phase but only the lord knows when he will return but i am excited that we have had an opportunity to study two additional verses again so we will have to pick up like you said next time in verse 12 and start from there so thank you for joining the podcast until next time
1: god bless you